Continuing our study of the book of Revelation, after an extended break, we are back to where we were uh, in Revelation. Revelation chapter 4 is we're going to be talking about tonight. And um, one of the things that you have to do when you're looking at Revelation is constantly reminding yourself of the big picture. Uh, sometimes we get, so, uh, we get so caught up or bogged down in some of the details of Revelation that we miss out on the big picture of Revelation. And uh, somebody has written this about the book of Revelation, that the purpose of this book is to assure suffering Christians that God and Jesus are sovereign and that the events that Christians are facing are part of the sovereign plan that will culminate in their redemption and the vindication of their faith through the punishment of their persecutors. Now, as we move into chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, what we see is the scenes that started in chapter 1 and the scene that started in chapter 2 and 3 are shifting now. We're really shifting our focus from earth unto heaven, and we are going to see here the complexity of Revelation really begins. Um, chapters 1 and 2 are, are fairly uh, tame in their symbolism. There's symbolism there, but it's explained at points or it's understandable because they're writing letters to churches or they're helping people out with an understanding of who Jesus is. Once you get to chapter 4, some of the symbolism begins to expand and uh, the events that are talked about here, as it will tell us at the beginning of chapter 4, is that it moves forward. Now, what's interesting is that there are scholars who will say that Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are the theological centers of this book. That the entire book of Revelation, what comes before chapters 4 and 5 is based upon, and what comes after chapter 6 is based upon the theological truths that are housed in chapters 4 and 5. Now tonight we're just going to look at chapter 4, but the essence is that chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation is the theological center of this book. Now, um, when you ask people about Revelation, you can get all kinds of responses about what they think the book is about. And there are lots of themes and lots of subjects in Revelation. But if you ask, what is the general overall? In fact, if um, you ask, what is the one-word definition of what the book of Revelation is like, you would get a myriad of responses. Some people, uh, just in an uh, almost joking way, would say, if you, I used one word to sum it up, it would be mystery or confusion. Um, but if you get to what's the essence of it, you would. some people would say uh, predictive, or some people would say uh, Jesus, because he's at the center of it, or some people would say the future, or end times. But one of the themes that is central to the book of Revelation, and is shown in chapters 4 and 5, is the theme of worship. If you just take a step back and read Revelation without trying to figure out everything and just reading what is actually there, one of the things that you will find is that what is actually there is a book consistently about worship. Now, chapters 4 and 5 are expressly about that, and what they do is they give us a glimpse of what worship is like in heaven. Now, as I mentioned, Revelation is a, a subject that can get people talking a lot, but so is the concept of heaven. And people have all kinds of questions about heaven. Um, where is it? Um, does it even exist? What will we be doing there? Um, who will be there? Who won't be there? How can I be sure I'll go? Um, what are we going to do once we get there? I mean, are we just going to sit on clouds? Are we just going to... Um, 
just do things over and over. I've heard some people say that uh, heaven's going to be like an extended everlasting church service. Uh, and even as a pastor, I can tell you that, that one of the most frightening things I can imagine is an extended everlasting church service. Now, we're going to see here in a moment what a portion of heaven will be like or what part of heaven will be like. But we have to understand that that heaven will have lots of different things happening, lots of amazing things happening. It will not be boring. It will not be something we wish we could get out of. But one of the things that is central to heaven is something that is central to this book, and that is that heaven will have as part of its central nature an ongoing worship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Uh, when people ask what we do in heaven, uh, we, we discover in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation that we won't be floating on a cotton candy cloud strumming a harp. And we won't be taking an eternal vacation that uh, soon goes boring. That it's not going to be an extended uh, pleasure marathon um, where we have multiple wives as the Mormons teach. It's not going to be an extended party with women and wine as the Islamic faith teaches. No. Heaven will have lots of activities, but part of what will be central to our time in heaven is that we will be worshiping God for who he is and what he does. And what we get in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation is a momentary unveiling of what heaven is like to one of the followers of God. Revelation chapter 4, if you've got a Bible around, you can... Read with me here. Revelation chapter 4 says, After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven a throne was set. One was seated on the throne, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. Around that throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones sat twenty-four elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and thunder. Burning before the throne were seven fiery torches, which are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne was something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal. In the middle and around the throne were four living creatures, covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whatever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, worship the one who lives forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne, and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, because you have created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. Now, knowing on the description that we just gave a few minutes ago, when you look at Revelation chapter 4, it really is a scene in heaven of worshiping God for who he is. And 
we see a couple of very important things when we look at this passage of Scripture about who God is. Now, first of all, notice that, that John is invited into the presence of God. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. Now, most of us realize the symbolism of an open door. An open door means that we are welcome to come in. An open door means that we are able to enter. One of the interesting things about the literature of this time surrounding John, um, things that were being written about the same time, is there was this movement, and even in Judaism, to try to attain entrance into the presence of God. But in most of the stories, there was some kind of arduous task or journey or uh, a variety of tests that one had to pass to get there. Um, You can think even in secular literature of of someone like Hercules who had to overcome a a variety of different um, tests in order to get to see his destiny fulfilled, or even a, a story like the Odyssey by Homer, where there are tests that were constantly put before him. Uh, it, when I was growing up, there was a a, uh, a, a movie called The Neverending Story, and in The Neverending Story, there were these constant tests and things that had to be passed. And it, in most literature around John's day, in order to get into the presence of God, there were tests that had to be passed or things that had to be done. But when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, what we see is God, when he decides for John to come into his presence, doesn't make him pass tests, doesn't make him jump through hoops. He just simply opens the door. It just simply says, Here's the door, come in. Now, we're not sure whether John actually went through the door or or kind of just peered in. It probably wasn't an actual door. I mean, John was in a vision seeing these things. But what we see here is that a voice like a trumpet just means loud and strong says, Come up here, I'll show you what must take place. The first thing that John sees when he gets there is the first thing that we see about God in this place. And that is that God is the center of everything. Now, it says in verse 2 that he was in the Spirit, and there in heaven was a throne. Now, what's obvious to most of us is that thrones represent royalty. Thrones represent um, power. Thrones represent people that are in charge. And what happens here in the book uh, of Revelation is that John sees this throne and immediately understands that the throne symbolizes the authority, the power, the strength, the sovereignty of God. In fact, this is kind of interesting, the word throne occurs 45 times in Revelation at least, and of that, 14 times it occurs in chapter 4. It denotes a monarchy, majesty, authority, royalty, and the sovereign Lord. It is a reminder to the people that will be reading this that although God's realm is separated from the earthly, he is nevertheless in control over earth's affairs. Regardless of how rampant evil seems to run and to cause God's people to suffer, they can know that his hand superintends everything for their good and his glory. Um, the, the true significance of this is that God is in control. Uh, he's in the center of everything. Now, God's sovereignty is actually heightened by the fact that God is not only just on his throne, but he is surrounded by thrones. Um, 
The, the circular constructions around the throne symbolically enhance God's cosmic universal kingship. It's a symbolic configuration attested to other places in the ancient world. All heavenly beings, and by proxy or by extension, all creation find significance only in their various placements around the centralized throne. What the writer of Revelation, what John is saying here is that God is central to everything. Now, he goes on to describe a little bit more and around this throne. But he tells us what there, and he uses these precious stones, jasper and carnelian and a rainbow that looks like an emerald. And, and it, we don't need to get into what those mean individually because I think the point is not what they mean individually. The point is that they just speak to the majesty and the glory of God, that he is indescribable, that the beauty that is in that place, the the unbelievable quality of this God at the center of all things was something that can't be described or contained. And so he, he puts in there with this unbelievable thing all around him, and then he says that around it are 24 thrones with 24 elders. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on exactly who the 24 elders are. There are some that say these 24 elders are... Um, Angels that are gathered around the throne. There are some that say that they're the 24 star gods of Babylon, that, that they're these star gods of Babylon, and the point is that they um, represent the other gods, that they are subservient. Whoever might be rulers, whoever might be uh, worshipped in other places, are subservient to God. There are those that say that they cover the 24 courses of the Aaronic priesthood, as described in 1 Chronicles 24.5. Um, there are some that say they are the redeemed of all, uh, of all ages. Now, there are lots of different ideas. Um, one of the ones that kind of has, has the most merit, I think, is that they are representatives, whether they be angels or humans or whatever, they're representatives that corporately represent the entirety of God's chosen people. In the Old Testament, you had 12 tribes that represented the people of God. The nation of Israel was composed of 12 tribes. When you move to the New Testament, you have Jesus calling out 12 apostles who would follow him and be his disciples, or his closest disciples, his apostles, the called out ones. And what I believe is happening here is as they're gathered around the throne, these representatives, that 12 plus 12 of 24, represent the entire population of God's people of all ages. Now, part of the reason I think that they represent us or that they are people who represent us either is because of the way they're described. Their description matches other descriptions about us in heaven. First of all, they're on thrones. Now, that doesn't mean that they're the ultimate authority or ultimate rulers, but we, as Scripture teaches, as followers of Jesus Christ, will rule with him. We'll be co-regent with him. We will rule alongside of him. And so there's authority that is entrusted to them. Their clothes are white, symbolic of um, the purity that comes from the blood of Jesus washing us clean. And other places in Revelation, white is symbolized of human beings that have given their life to Jesus. And then they have crowns, and they are victor's crowns. They, uh, victor's crowns of the redeemed. It's one of those things that um, 
The crowns are representative of the reward that we will gain when we get to heaven. So what we have here in this first part, in the first few verses of chapter 4, is a description of God being at the center of all things. He's in the midst of these 24 elders. His throne is in the middle. The other thrones are surrounding it. And the point is that he is sovereign and in control of all things. As we move to um, verses 5 and following, what we're going to see is not so much just God's position, but God's perfection. And we move from seeing God as the center of all things to seeing those things in which he is perfect. It says in verse 5 that from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and thunder. The first thing that we see that God is perfect in here is that God is perfect in his strength. Um, There's a difference between witnessing a thunderstorm from a distance and being in the midst of a thunderstorm. When I first came to pastor here at First Baptist Goodlettsville, um, our youth minister was a guy named Jake Gaines. And Jake and I, uh, after I got here, went out to lunch and had some discussions about different things. And um, Jake was in school at the time, and I remember saying, Jake, what are you, um, what are you studying? And Jake told me that uh, he studied was or was majoring in meteorology. And I, I said, Jake, what in the world does that have to do with, with being a youth pastor? Is that what you want to do? He said, that's what I want to do. But he, he was trying to get through school, and he had picked a, a major that had kind of fit him. And then, I, and then he said, and not only that, but I just love watching the weather. Well, I got to witness this firsthand on several occasions. Um, um, Jake was one of those that when a, a severe thunderstorm would come by the church and we would get a tornado warning or severe thunderstorm warning and would begin to take cover, Jake would be standing at the door watching to see what was happening. And Jake was one that we were playing golf one day, and, and as we were playing golf, uh, we could see a, a thunderstorm start to kind of move around, and, and, and we could see the lightning and the thunder and the things in the distance. And almost, almost moment by moment, we could see the rain and all of that coming closer to us. And I remember telling Jake, Jake, I know you enjoy watching this, but it's time for us to get in the clubhouse. It's time to leave here. And so we left, and we got in the clubhouse. Um, I like watching thunderstorms from a distance. Last summer, uh, my wife Susan uh, was on the Brazil mission trip that our Littlesville here went on. And while she went on that mission trip, uh, I was here left with with the kids. And um, my dad was here to help, and I had all three kids. And and dad was a big help. Dad helped in a lot of areas. But dad uh, was not what I would call mission-critical help. And so dad hadn't changed the diaper since I was a kid, and he didn't plan on starting now. Uh, Dad was not going to be with one of the kids if they got sick in the middle of the night. And so those kind of responsibilities fell to me. When I, uh, and so each night I kind of slept, um, but it was a little on edge every night. Well, I remember one particular night, early in the morning, almost by about daybreak, as I was lying in bed, um, suddenly there was a flash of lightning that I didn't see at first, or didn't see, and a crack of thunder that must have been right on top of the house. The lightning must have woke me up because as I was waking up, this thunder hit and it literally shook the house. I waited a few moments just to make sure everything was all right and flashed back to when I was a child and we were actually caught in a tornado. My point there is 
There's a difference in watching a thunderstorm at a distance and being caught up in the midst of a powerful storm. When John goes to describe the scene he sees, he describes thunder and lightning surrounding the throne. The point of that is that God is infinitely strong. And the power that you sense and feel in the midst of a thunderstorm is nothing compared to the power that the Lord God Almighty possesses. And so we have here in chapter 4 this description of the perfection of God's strength. But it's not just his strength that's perfect. I mean, there's this description of the seven fiery torches and the seven spirits of God. The number seven reminding us of God's perfection. The Apostle John is going to continue here and give us this description of these four living creatures. And one of the things that, that we notice and that people that have studied the Old Testament would notice is that what happens in John uh, in Revelation chapter 4 is that John reflects on what's happening in heaven, but there's a great amount of Old Testament background here as well. Um, at some point you can look at Daniel chapter 7 or Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2 or Isaiah chapter 6 and see the, the way that these are very, very similar. Uh, in fact, the, the book of Daniel has multiple similarities to what happens here in chapter 4. And so, as we begin to see these descriptions, the perfection of God comes out in contrast to even these amazing creatures that are around the throne. Verse 7 says, or verse 6, excuse me, so that around the sea of glass there are these four living creatures covered with eyes in front and back. That, that just speaks to God's perfection uh, in creation and God's perfection in knowing all that is happening. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of these creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Each of these four animals represent different things. And when you look at them in um, tradition, they represent different aspects of God's creation. I think when you put them together, what you see is that God, um, what you see represented is God's perfect creation or creation as a whole represented in these four animals. But what we see in each individual one is a reminder of the fact that no matter what kind of strength we see in creation, the creator is perfected in that strength. For instance, the first animal is called the lion. And the lion we all refer to as the king of the animal world or king of the jungle. Uh, the lion is at the top of the food chain. In fact, without guns or other weapons, lions would be above us in the food chain. And so we have to understand that when people talk about lions or when they write about lions, they're talking about strength, honor, nobility, might. And what is mentioned here is this creature is bowing down to the Lord God Almighty. What it reminds us of is whatever strength or authority or honor or respect we give in the animal created world, that our God is perfected in those things. The next animal is an ox or a calf. They were the symbols of kind of power under control, a very strong animal that nevertheless served. 
It, it was a symbol of service and strength, power, exercise for the benefits of others. It was the mightiest of the domesticated animals. Um, I'm reminded even of Philippians chapter 2, which talks about Jesus, who did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to, but gave it up, relinquished it for the glory and the honor of serving and becoming a servant. It tells us that this ox, this calf, the most highly thought of domesticated servant animal, bows down to the one at the center. Then he gives us this picture of man. And it says that man's the only one that has a face, and that's because the man is representing the intellectual, intelligent, rational, spiritual dimensions of creation. And it says there that man is one of these four creatures, and it reminds us of our own ability to think and to live. But even in that, it says that we bow down to the one at the center. The last one there is an eagle, and I grew up in West Tennessee, at a place called Wilfoot Lake. They have uh, they have some eagles there that have been injured or or caught or and placed in, in uh, protective custody. But at certain times of year around Wilfoot Lake, on certain years especially, it's a place where the eagles come during the winter, and you can go out and watch eagles flying over. And there is nothing more majestic than watching an eagle fly. And in the ancient world, the eagle often represented deity or godlike qualities. And the idea here in Revelation is even the eagle and its noble and, and godlike qualities is nothing compared to the one at the center. So when John gets this vision, this unveiling of what's going on in heaven, the first thing he sees is how perfect God is at the center of all creation. And what happens at the end of this chapter is it reminds us that the only appropriate response to the one who is the center of everything and is completely perfect is unashamed worship. Verse 8 says, Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with their eyes and around and inside. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And not to be outdone, uh, living creatures, those 24 elders, when they see the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one, the 24 elders say, we're not going to let them beat us to the punch. We are going to fall down. They cast their crowns. They give up what they have. They bow at the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things. And because of your will, they exist and were created. The truth is that when we arrive in heaven, and we become aware of who God is in his perfection and his centrality to all things. Our only appropriate response will be unashamed worship. You know, I was thinking about this the other day in our, our worship services. and I don't think heaven will be like our worship services. There will be some difference. But I was thinking about our own worship services. And... I was thinking, you know, when we get to heaven, when worship is going on, there's not going to be anybody there with crossed arms, almost as in defiance of worship. There's not going to be anyone there critical of what's happening or complaining 
about what's being sung. There's not going to be anyone there holding back their voice because they're afraid they can't sing well. There's not going to be anybody there emotionally disconnected. Nobody texting or passing notes. No one checking the latest scores or news on their smartphones. Won't be anybody looking at their watches trying to figure out how much longer this is going to last. Because in that moment, we will be caught up into this glorious presence of the one who is the center of all things and perfect in all that we know. Someone has said, if you don't like worship here on earth, then you are going to be woefully unprepared for heaven. The story of Revelation chapter 4, this centralized theological concept is that the God that we're talking about, whether we are suffering through persecution or we're trying to make it every day of our lives, whether we're suffering through a bad family relationship, financial times, whether we're suffering with relationships outside the home, we're struggling in school or in work or personally with some sin issues, to be reminded that the God in the center of all things who is perfect in all that he is and does, is the God who's going to bring everything together. And when we realize that, when we come to that understanding, the only appropriate response is unashamed worship. You know, I've been fortunate enough to experience unashamed worship in my life in a variety of places. And what I discovered is it really doesn't matter the kind of building I'm in. It doesn't matter even the type of songs that are being sung. It doesn't even matter the language in which the songs are being sung. What happens when unashamed worship comes out of my heart is that I get a glimpse of the glorious nature of God and a glimpse of how unworthy I am to be called His Son. Revelation chapter 4 reminds us that part of what our experience in heaven will be like is that we will unashamedly worship the Lord. Now let me ask a question today as we close. When was the last time? I don't mean worship service necessarily. This could be at your home. It could be in a workplace. It could be driving in a car. When was the last time you unashamedly worshipped the Lord? Didn't care what anybody else thought. Didn't matter what else was going on in your life. You just worshipped him. It might be a good idea for us to spend some time practicing for the unashamed worship that we'll experience in heaven.